This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book at the Wednesday dinner hour service under the covering title of the finished work. It would be natural for anyone to see that title to think we should immediately be speaking of the cross of Christ where the finished work was accomplished. But you see, unless you know why the finished work was necessary, unless you have some idea as to from what you've been redeemed, redemption doesn't mean anything. From what have you been redeemed? All you say, the bondage of sin and death and so on. Yes, you see. So that it's necessary for us to go make a wider circle. And that's why we have got this big covering title which will practically occupy us for the whole of our lives. Uh, That is to say, we are looking at Genesis 1 and we're creeping up through a long last to Revelation chapter 22. And that is the purpose of the ages and that is all focused and centred upon the finished work of Christ. Well now, without more ado, I want to run over the scriptures without, uh, without attempting to explain half of them in our limited time, so that you should have chapter and verse for the fact that we have a spiritual enemy, a spiritual foe, that you cannot set on one side, you cannot reduce, you cannot avoid, and with whom the Son of God entered into mortal combat. First of all, let us notice from Matthew 13 these words. Verse 28. He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. Now that, that, that leaves me open to a challenge. You cannot build a doctrine upon a parable. No. But you can build a doctrine upon an inspired, inspired translation of the parable. So I switch over to verse 39. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. So I know that there's an enemy who is actively sowing his seed in the good ground that God prepared. And that is a picture, of course, what has been going on since Genesis commenced and which will go on till the last enemy is destroyed. Right to the moment when the Son of God lays at the feet of the Father a perfect kingdom, there's an enemy to be destroyed. Well, if that's, if that's not enough to convince us that this is a subject we ought to have some knowledge of, I don't know what else I can say. So now shall we turn to John, the 8th chapter. And notice our Saviour's words there. John, the 8th chapter, verse 44. He is in conflict with the Jews, you must remember. And he said unto them in verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now John has already said in the beginning was the word, and this to do with the time of creation. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is the liar and the father of it, and that it comes out as the lie in the mystery of iniquity in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So there you have again, your father, the devil, is a murderer from the beginning. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, to supplement that. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. So he was a murderer from the beginning, and he was a sinner from the beginning, 
And it goes on to say, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy, or better still, undo the works of the devil. So there you've got the enemy, and you've got the work of Christ to undo the works of the devil which have covered this whole period of man's present existence with its misery. Well, now we'll take a little bit further view of this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 and 7. You must pardon me for going rapidly because we should not get through even this survey if I stop too long on any one part. Hebrews chapter 2. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Now you see, you cannot compare somebody with someone else unless there's a basis of comparison. And when Adam was put on the earth, he was given dominion over this earth. And the scripture indicates that before Adam was ever put on the earth, dominion was exercised by angels. But, you say, did angels fail? Did they fall? Did they stumble or what not? Well, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, now he's not saying anything about the fact of the angels that sinned, he's simply using it as an argument. That's a stronger uh, evidence than ever. Yes, it's assuming that the angels sinned and were not spared. He doesn't have to prove that. For he, and if God spared not the angels that sinned and cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world but saved noisy, you can't get away from the fact that angels sin and are reserved unto judgment. And we'll supplement that by Jude. Chapter, or oh, there's no chapter in Jude, is there? Just verse 6. Jude, verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, is another little light. You remember that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and the result was a progeny that were giants that had to be destroyed by a flood. These angels left their own principality, their own estate, they left their, their own oikotelion, which is the word used for a resurrection body, they inhabited the bodies of men and brought about terrible results in this earth. The angels interfering with the purpose of God. And there again it says, the reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, to the judgment of the great day. Now we look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. You'll think I'm giving you one of these conducted tours where you've hardly got time to breathe. Well, that's because of the immensity of the subject, friends, not by choice. Revelation 12, 7. And there was war in heaven. So there is war in heaven at some time or another. But this is future. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. So there's war between angelic foes and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that ancient serpent, not merely old in sense of years, but the one of antiquity, called the devil, that's the New Testament, and Satan, that's the Old Testament, in, in case you think it wasn't the same person, which deceived the whole world, that's his great characteristic. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Well, we move from that to Romans, the 8th chapter, verse 38. 
Romans, the 8th chapter. Now, we're very much acquainted when we're speaking of our high calling in the mystery and the epistles of the Ephesians as being blessed far above all principality, power, might and dominion. But you notice in Romans, the 8th chapter, these principalities and powers are listed with those which are antagonistic to us. Romans, the 8th chapter, verse 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Angels, principalities, powers, they are all listed there as antagonistic, as foes. And you say, of course, you ought to turn to the sixth chapter of um, Ephesians, and you'll find that it's definitely said so. Oh, but let's go there then, friends, if that's the case. Ephesians 6. The first chapter says that all our blessings are spiritual. The sixth chapter says that don't forget all your antagonists are spiritual. They work together. If you're blessed in the earth, you'll have earthly foes. If you're blessed in heavenly places, you'll have heavenly foes. And we've already seen there are heavenly foes. Now it says here in chapter 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That, that is the term to be used for speaking of ordinary human beings. But we do wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. So they're the world holders of this darkness, ruling this world still in measure, against spiritual wickedness, spiritual wickednesses, in high places or heavenly places. And back again in Colossians, or further on in Colossians chapter 2 verse 15, Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers. So they were associated with these ordinances that had to be nailed to the cross of Christ. They were dominating the world by these elements, as he goes on to say in Colossians. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them, in it. Well then we go back to Matthew twenty five forty one, just for another statement. Matthew twenty five forty one. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, not prepared for you. Oh no but originally prepared for the devil and his angels. Peter says so, Jude says so, Matthew says so, that this fate at the end was prepared for the devil and his angels. But here are some who have gone over to his side and have to share his doom. We won't go into all the arguments that may be brought about this, but we go back once more to the first epistle, epistle to Timothy. First epistle to Timothy, chapter 3. He speaks here, and I think perhaps we'll, we'll tarry just here for the moment to let, let the word have the opportunity to speak to us from a practical point of view. He's speaking here about a bishop. Now a bishop in the days of the Apostle Paul was not the same as we conjure up today. 
he was a homely man, and his qualifications were not academic. His qualifications were that he should be blameless, the husband of one wife, because in those days they practiced polygamy and they couldn't very well alter it if they became a Christian, but he must not be that side. He must be vigilant, sober, good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy or filthy, uh, filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how should he take care of the church of God? That would get rid of some ministers, wouldn't it, friends? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So the apostle links the possibility of someone being a little bit proud because he was able to speak at a meeting and boast a little bit about his knowledge. Oh, but he said that was the thing that brought about the downfall of Lucifer. How art thou fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning? He said, I will set my throne above the stars. I will be like the most high. And the greater the height, the greater the fall. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, and let those also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. And so we've got the emphasis here on the idea that this um, thing permeates, especially in connection with any trust that has been given to you. If you care to read at your own leisure the 28th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, an exceedingly difficult passage, you'll have a, a being there who was perfect from the day that was created until he fell. And he's going to ultimately to be brought to ashes upon the earth and never shall he be anymore. And he had an office. He was the anointed cherub that covered he had a close relationship to the throne of God. And that goes right back before Genesis 1 starts. Right back there in Genesis 1, before ever man comes on the scene. And we've got this to remember, that the whole of the Bible, from beginning to end, is practically written in the light of the fact that there's a war on, and it's never ended. There never has been peace on earth since Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden. There never will be peace until this past enemy is destroyed. And that, not yet, friends, is still at large. So you see, you have lived through a period of war, and you know that without anyone regarding your affairs, you had to go without certain things that was not getting them. You had to stumble home in the blackout, you couldn't help yourself. You had to have your, your correspondence intercepted, and we were being misled by lies and rumours, that's in the ordinary war, but it's going on in the spiritual world. So what a need there is for us to this lamp to our feet, this light to our path, this guide. So you won't go away and say, well, what a subject to take for this Wednesday meeting just to occupy the time telling us about this awful foe. But friends, ignorance is not bliss, not in this case. The person who serves the devil most is the one who's come to the conclusion there's no such thing. And then he can get on with his work without interference. Our Saviour met him. Right at the beginning of his ministry, the devil took him. He didn't go. The devil took him. And at an act of worship, he would have given him the whole world 
He said, it's mine to give. And our Saviour never contradicted him. But he said, get thee behind me, Satan. He quoted the scriptures. He met Satan as you and I can. Not in his own strength. He simply said, it is written. And the ch- smallest child of God and the weakest child of God can say, it is written. And it's an, as an evidence in the scriptures that that's the one thing that the evil one cannot resist. You stick to the book. Don't argue with him. He'll beat you at philosophy and logic and everything else. But if it is written, there'll come a moment when, like the Son of God, he will leave you. So you understand we have one weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And if these meetings do nothing else, but impress upon those who listen to them, that that's our one weapon, the only weapon we have been given. Well, these are opportunities to know how to use it, isn't it? It's no good having a sword if you've never used it till you go out to battle, is it? You, you might find it cuts both ways. You want to be able to test it. You want to be able to use it. And so we commend these meetings to the Lord that it may be. That when we have to stand in the evil day which the Ephesians says will come, we should not be found wanting.